the Utah Open Source Foundation brings the Utah logs home. Feel free to listen live at stream.utos.org or catch the audio afterward at podcast.utos.org. The bandwidth is provided by Center 7. The following presentation, Practical Puppet Systems Building Systems, was given on March 14, 2009 by Andrew Schaefer at the Ubuntu Utah User Group. Visit their site at utah.ubuntu-us.org. My name is Andrew Schaefer. I uh, work on Puppet, which is a automation framework. It's GPL'd. It's all written in Ruby. It's an external DSL. Most sysadmins who use it start to uh, like it, so you've been warned. This is uh, how we're going to start. We're going to talk about testing all the F and time. Some other place I'd probably swear more, but I'm going to swear less. So I'm going to talk about code, I'm going to talk about tribes, I'm going to talk about the dawn of time, I'm going to talk about clouds, I'm going to talk about evolution, and I'm going to talk about opportunity and triumph. Not necessarily in that order. So like I said, this is uh, Andrew Schaefer, and I'm the proud father of two beautiful boys. I like mathematics, I work for Reductive Labs, and I work on a project called Puppet, which, as I said before, is an automation framework. So let's start at the beginning. No, before that. Cards. <laughs> so a long time ago, there wasn't, there wasn't computer science. There was people that wanted to compute and they had math and physics problems they wanted to solve. And for a short period of time, the people that ran the computers and understood the systems were the same people that programmed them. And right now I'm talking to sysadmins, but earlier I gave this exact same talk to developers. And at some point, they separated, right? In that period, that first period, will probably only last about 10 minutes. And you know, then we had the separation. and the internet became used for porn, and now we're here. So we're going to look at code. This is Puppet code. I just showed you guys this same code before. If you're hearing this, you can't see it. Hopefully, the slides will be available. This is the definition for installing uh, Ruby on Rails. And the, this is all code I wrote in the last two, three days. And we're going to walk through it. Hopefully, it will make sense by the end. So this is saying Rails site, the name that's being passed in is the next big thing. And the server name, which is going to end up being set up as a virtual server in the Apache Conf, which we'll see by the end, is tnbt.com, the next big thing.com. I don't even know if that resolves. I didn't even check. And we have to install Rails version 2.2 because our app that we want to install wants to run that. If you're installing Rails, you know what a pain it is to try to you know, deal with the version versioning issues. So it's all written in Ruby, but it's not Ruby. It's an external DSL. And if you're a Rubyist, 
that probably hurt you, um, but deal with it. <laughs> uh, we, we just won an award. The, this is the, the person who wrote Ruby. I don't know if you know much of this is, was, this was originally formatted for a Ruby conference, and this is the primary author of Ruby, um, Matsumoto Yukihiro. He is a, an artist, seriously. Ruby is a work of art, and it makes a lot of people happy. It makes me personally happy, and if you don't know Ruby, you should get acquainted with it because it is very beautiful. And he was the judge for this award that was in Japan, and he awarded uh, Puppet and a rating of excellent, so which that was the second award, and they gave us a check for I think ten thousand yen or something, and a little statue with like a ruby, and like a little. Uh, it, it's like ten thousand. Yeah. Oh, no, I'm sorry, it's like a thousand. The the the, the main prize was ten thousand dollars, and that went to which I think might have been a million yen. I'm not I'm not positive, and I'm tired. Like I, not to make excuses, but the uh, the winning prize was a framework for modeling climate from some group in Korea, which sounds like an awesome project. So I don't feel too bad getting like the second place, but um, that's, that's, that's a tribute to, to Matt's and to Ruby. And you know, we, love, we love Ruby, and, and we're big in Japan. What can you do? You're big everywhere. <laughs> so, so back to this code. We're going to install RailSite. We already looked at that. So let's see what that expands to. This is puppet language again. This is the definition of the Rails site. So since you guys are not Rubyists and you haven't been installing Rails, I'll walk through this with a little more detail to make it all make sense. But if you've installed Rails, like this is what you do all the time. You have to deal with it. What are you going to do? So it's going to install Ruby. It's going to install Gems, which is an alternative package management thing that, that Ruby do, does. Um, Apache, everyone, not everyone, but a lot of people run Apache as their web server. Passenger is, you can think of that as mod Rails, like if you do mod anything else, mod PHP. Then MySQL is going to be used as the database in this case. You could use Postgres or SQLite or some other crazy database, but MySQL is easy, so we'll do that. And then we're going to install Rails, uh, the Rails setup and Rails install. So. We're going to walk through all this code. We're going to expand it and look at it. And we're going to keep coming back to this just to kind of get our reference. So moving on, first we're going to look at installing Ruby. So class Ruby, when you say include in a manifest, it's going to look for that class. And then it's going to instantiate it. And what Puppet tries to do is, is be declarative. So it has this resource model, which is based on, on nouns, as opposed to if you're scripting things in bash or Ruby, or, or an imperative language, then you tend to think imperatively. What Pub is trying to get you to do is think declarative. So you're not thinking about, how do I do this? You're thinking about, what should it be like? What state should it be in? So you're saying, here I want to install these packages. I want Ruby 1.8. I want the dev, the rdoc, which is a documentation for Ruby, ri, irb, which is interactive and open SSL for Ruby. And you're going to say, ensure that they're installed. Done. It's going to like we saw before, that's going to expand to app get on this particular system. At the bottom of Puppet is this abstraction layer. So if you ran this exact same code on Red Hat, it's going to, it's going to expand to yum, if that makes sense. So we're back here. The next thing we're going to do is install gems. Now, this, this gems pack class is not going to install 
gem packages, it's actually going to install a package manager, the gems package manager. So it's going to go through, these are, these are declarative. It breaks down a little bit when you get to execs. So there's certain times when you're going to essentially shell out. So an exec is say, run this command on the shell. So you're sort of breaking a little bit out of the, the uh, declarative paradigm, but sometimes you just got to do it. So here we're going to wget uh, something from RubyForge, which is a tarball with the gems. And I think it's uh, interesting. We'll, we'll use the word interesting that RubyForge is a PHP application. What are you going to do? And here's another note, and I don't know if you guys are thinking about automation too much in your jobs right now, but RubyForge, to get this gem, I have to know this magic number, 45905, to get the Ruby gems 131. Why? I don't know, but I think you're exposing some part of your implementation through that interface that you don't need to, and it makes it difficult for me to automate. So one of the things that would be nice is if I could say restfully, I want version 131 and get it back without knowing this magic number. So if you look at the, the site and go and look at all the gems for Ruby gems, or not the, the gems with the tarballs, then you have to know this magic number. And, and I don't know what you guys work on or exactly what you set up, but think about that kind of stuff. If you're exposing implementation in a way that doesn't need to be, it's going to make either your life or someone else's life potentially harder later, like you're, you're showing off your underwear. And then this next line creates is important for something I'm about to spring on you um, because you're going you're gonna to set up this item potent. So that's, that's something that the other models do for you, but with exec you have to do that uh, essentially manually. So what that's telling this particular instance of exec is that this command will create this file. Does that make sense? And then after you get it, you're going to untar it. It's basically the same thing. And then you're setting up an explicit relationship. So you're saying, I can't untar it until I get it. So that's what the require is going to do. And this is actually going to build a directive graph, and there's some crazy stuff that can happen there, but we're not going to get too much into that right now. And then the gems setup, it's going to make sure that it also has Ruby. So the, the setup is going to depend on untarring the the gems, but it's also going to depend on Ruby, so you have to set up that dependency. And then at the end, I'm going to set up a symlink, and I can't set up the symlink until I've run setup. Does that make sense? So let's talk about idempotence. Who knows what idempotence means? We don't need that picture. So idempotence is a, is a mathematical or computer science concept, which means an, an idempotent, it means that an operation can be performed multiple times, and it will only put things into a certain state. And, and it won't change that state after, the, after subsequent operations. So something like adding one, the, the operation adding one is not an idempotent operation. If I add one to a number, it's now bigger. And I add another one, it's bigger. And another one, it's bigger. In math, a simple idempotent operation would be multiplying by zero. Right? So if I multiply any number by zero, I get a number. That number is zero. And I can multiply it as many times as I want by zero, and it will stay zero. Does that make sense? So what you're doing when you set up these creates is you're saying, perform this operation. But if this runs again, 
it's not going to do it. Because in this case, it wouldn't really matter. It would just make that file again. But there are certainly scripts, and I'm sure you guys have experienced this, if you run the same script twice, it's potentially destructive. And, and so you, have, you set up these um, conditions that protect you from that based on your understanding of the system. So we'll go back here. We're going to install Apache. This is pretty simple. I have a class Apache, and the class is going to require these packages. This is, I'm sure you guys have run apt-get install Apache before. And I'm also going to set up a service. So this is another one of the resources in the model. This is going to say that make sure Apache is running, and it has restart. Is um, Some services, if they're using init, uh, they can restart some services on some platforms. You basically do a stop and then a start. Uh, so this is like some parameterization to manage the differences between systems. And then this is another define we're going to look at in a second that is going to get rid of the default site that comes with the patching, which might be why it disappeared. Uh, so this define I just described to you is going to take essentially one parameter, and then it's going to do a case statement. If that parameter is present, then it's going to run an exec that is, if you guys are managing Ubuntu, I'm pretty sure you've seen this stuff before. It's going to enable the site based on, or, or disable the site when we get to the absent. And it's only going to run, this is back to the idempotence stuff, if that is not found in grepping uh, or, or doing it ls of the directory and grepping the results for that pattern. Does that make sense? And then disables is essentially the opposite. It's going to disable the site if it can find it. That, that code is pretty, I think the semantics are easy to uh, understand. Yes, Clint? It's an it's a idiom that Apache 2 uses on, on Debian distributions to manage uh, virtual hosts. <coughs> it's, well, so, so it, it, what you do is you create a virtual host description in sites available. And then when you run, okay, yeah. when you run this command, it symlinks it to sites enabled. Okay. And it's a much better system than putting all this stuff in, in Apache Conf, right? Because right. then you can manage them as items instead of like this monolithic file. Okay, so we're back here. The next thing we're going to install is MySQL. Oh no, I'm sorry, I skipped something. Passenger. Passenger enable. So Passenger is an interesting um, project that is essentially mod Rails. It lets you run your Ruby on Rails in Apache, through Apache. And it's available as a gem, but it's kind of it's kind of weird because gems is a package that distributes Ruby code, but in this case it's going to distribute code that gets compiled. So is it a source package or an you know, binary package, it's, it's, it gets a little weird. What I would recommend you do if you wanted to install Pasture and you have any control over your infrastructure, you would not do it this way. What you would do is you would build it once and package it with your favorite, you know, package manager, app, you know, or dpackage, and then through your own private repos, you just serve that out. So in this case, what we're going to do is we're going to run the passenger load which got installed with the gem that we just installed. And that's going to build a bunch of stuff. And at the end of that, it's going to have this .so file, which I'm sure if you've managed uh, 
you know, any, any modules in Apache you're familiar with, and then that's a directive to load that module that you would put in apache.conf, right? And, and there's also, if you're, I don't know if you're familiar with this, but there's a similar idiom to managing the modules on Apache on Ubuntu as there is to managing the sites. So there's a modules available directory. You put all the modules available, then you run the exec here, which is enable this mod, and then it's going to put a symlink that is going to be in the modules enabled. Makes sense, right? And then you also need to have another little conf file, which here is going to be templated. Um, I didn't show this template. I'm going to show some other templates later. But it's a simple two-liner that tells Apache where the Ruby executable lives and where the Rails executable live. So Apache can you know, do, its, do its magic and, and get those. So that's the conf. And that's just, if you go learn how Apache's managed on Debian, that will make perfect sense. All, all this. All this available on my GitHub. Does anyone use Git? Yes. Um, so on GitHub, little.idea, all this code's available, so you can look at it. Um, it's also available on the EC2 instance, which I'll tell you about in, or we saw it earlier, but I'll explain it for the streaming in a minute. Um, so you can go poke around at all these modules and run them and play with them. And then passer installs another define. It's pretty straightforward. What it's going to do is run the, uh, I think it, something got out of order. Oh, no, it didn't. It's the first thing here to define. And then passer install. In this case, that's where it's going to grab the gem. And then this is another thing. This is like where things break down. And this goes to, this is about the tribes thing, right? In, in a lot of organizations, you probably don't experience this if you're doing academics as much. But if you're working in an organization that has both developers and sysadmins, there's often this tension. And like this, like, they don't. <laughs> They're not the same tribe, is all I'm saying, right? So, so in this case, uh, these these developers and they're great developers. They they made mod rails and they put it in gems. And then when you build this thing, you have to interact with it. But what you need to do to interact with that is hit enter twice, with like no other data. And it's just like, hi, I'm this little ASCII screen, and I have like this blue thing, and then. Do you really want to do this? Really? Well, I'm not even going to ask you. Just hit enter. And then when it's done, it's like you have to hit enter again. I don't know why. Maybe someone made a user story. <laughs> I don't know if you guys are familiar with that idiom, but I don't want to get too off the tracks right now. So then that's, this is back to the item potents. It's going to create the file that we already saw being moved into the um, directory. Now we're going to install MySQL, pretty straightforward. Packages, blah, blah, blah. MySQL client, MySQL server, libMySQL, dev, install them. Then we're going to set up databases. This is for Rails to operate, it needs to have three databases, uh, a dev, test, and production database. And the, that's just how Rails internals work. This is a way to do that with this database define. I'm going to define all three of those later with parameters. So it's pretty straightforward to understand. It's going to run the command create database unless that database exists. And I can also drop databases. It's going to run drop database if, unless that database doesn't exist using that same idiom of ensure present or ensure absent. Ruby MySQL is a gem that Ruby needs. It's basically the bindings for Ruby to talk to MySQL. And 
And now we're going to get to the bottom of this. Rails setup, we're going to actually get Rails. In this case, we're going to parameterize the Rails gem that we install with the version that we need to match for application. So that's pretty straightforward substitution. In the idiom for packages, ensure absent will get rid of a package, ensure present will install the latest package, and install a version will, will pin it to that package. So with gems in particular, you can have more than one version of, of gems installed. So you could actually install both of them. So if, you, if you're installing system packages and you ensure it's a certain version, then it's going to, using whatever the native package manager supports, and that you know, mileage may vary on different systems, it's going to try to pin it to that package. It's going to tell that native package manager make it be this package through whatever mechanism that, that's abstracted at the bottom. And if that package manager supports it or it's been implemented right, which sometimes break down, but it's pretty, I think it's going to be pretty solid on um, Ubuntu, it's going to try to make it that version. So then Rails install is the last defined. This is all Rails-isms. Um, if you've never installed Rails, you might not have seen this. But if you have, then you've done it a million times. It's going to make a directory. Um, I choose var rails just because I don't know why. It seems like a good place. And it's going to put that with the user that Apache runs as. And then it's going to run this command that's going to install rails with the name of the application. And then it's going to configure that with the database. So you have to tell the rails application where your databases live and how to connect to them. And then it's going to set up the um, virtual host with the name for that site that Apache needs. And then it's going to enable that virtual host with the define that we already saw in the Apache um, class. These are, these are the templates. So this is a template that is going to use to configure the Rails app. This is YAML. It's, I don't know if you're familiar with that data format. It's essentially going to say, here's how you log in. These are the databases. You'll notice that I use the super secure default password for the root user, Rocket. And then <laughs> it's going to set up the virtual host. Um, this is another template. This is ERB. If you're doing Ruby stuff, you've seen this a million times, but you guys probably haven't. And it's pretty simple substitution. So here it's going to substitute in the server name that we put in as a virtual host and the name of the application. So it's going to be var rails the name of our application in public. And that's, gonna, that's where Apache is going to mount it. And then your server's ready. And if you guys go look on that URL, I think you should see that the, the rail stack should be running. It's up? OK. There you go. Server's ready. Now, the reason this is interesting and important is, and in particular when you start thinking about um, virtualization and EC2 is, I can make API calls and get servers, right? And, and even internally, if you start to set up, and th this transition's happening, if you start to set up you know, VMware and some of these more complicated systems, like a lot of people are virtualizing their internal infrastructure just as much, right? So you can bring up new images with whatever you want and then build them to be whatever you want, 
Now, if you're a sysadmin, and I didn't, I didn't really go through this, but we'll talk about this more in the end. There's, the, there's, there's this way to like try to do this with images and managing versions of images, and that's a path to hell, I assure you. And, and we'll talk about that um, by the end of it. You mentioned VMware is decent with parallels. Well, the nice thing about a virtual machine is you can't tell that it's a virtual machine, right? So if you're just running, so so some people have set up things to manage those hypervisors with Puppet, but then underneath those virtual machines, you could configure them just like they're normal machines, right? So this goes back to what I said at first. Um, this is something you guys probably aren't as familiar with, but but T A T F T pronounced Taft because the T is silent stands for testing all the F in time. And that's an ADM that the Ruby guys have kind of embraced. Um, but it kind of breaks down when you start to talk about things like servers because the, the time scales are different, right? Like if you install some package, if you build a, a package, then it might take minutes. Where if you're doing you know, test-driven development, you want to be able to run hundreds of tests, you know, at least 10 tests in like a fraction of a second. So you're working on this code. And your, your cycle, your feedback cycle is much shorter. When you start to build servers, it just breaks down. Furthermore, because the language, the puppet language is declarative, then you're trying to make, if you're doing really good test sort of methodology, your test should be declarative. But now you have code that's declarative and tests that are declarative. Like it doesn't even make sense. You're basically saying one equals one, and it doesn't tell you anything. And it's not even ground truth, right? So you need to install, make sure it works. And, and so like the whole thing breaks down. You guys aren't as familiar with this idiom, so you're probably looking at me like, what the hell is this guy talking about? But if you're moving from more of a development environment, like developing Ruby, developing Rails, and you're you know, running RSpec and, and running hundreds of tests you know, every, every couple minutes to, to make sure your, your development's moving in the direction it should be, then you move to doing Puppet, you, you're basically kind of forced back to this code and fix paradigm, which is how most software is written from the beginning of time, but it's actually not as awesome as test-driven development. But I just want to point that out. Ideas, um, I, when I showed this slide at the Ruby conference, I was basically begging people to like give me, if you can figure out some slick way to test the code versus the infrastructure, um, I'd love to hear them, but I think the fact is it just breaks down and your test cycles are going to be however long, to, however long it takes to run that, that those puppet manifest and then make sure that stuff's set up. So, so one of the things people have done is set up continuous integration. Does, are you guys familiar with like continuous integration type stuff? So you basically run a, run a server that every time there's changes, it's going to run all the puppet manifests and then it's going to check the spec, the, the specification, you could use our spec, um, but instead of running code and, and mock objects, it's going to actually shell out to the machine and make sure. So I, these are my web servers. I want my web servers to be running X, Y, Z, and it's going to look on the systems themselves and say that's running. And then if you break it, you'll know because the continuous integration will tell you. And that matters if you're running infrastructure, right? If you're, if you're running web servers and you know, you want to change something in the system over here, you check that into the puppet code before it gets to production. Because going back to infrastructure as code, now hopefully, and you know, everyone probably breaks this rule every once in a while, but you don't really want to move from whatever you just did on your laptop to production environment if you're running an application. And now that your infrastructure is code, you probably don't want whatever you just committed to get deployed directly to your 
geared environment. And the way people run Puppet, which we'll talk about a little later, um, probably after the, the slides are done, the, the cycle is, is automated so that when you commit to the central repository for your production environment, it gets propagated. And that could be potentially hundreds or thousands of machines. And so like one little mistake, and you could bring down a lot of your infrastructure. So now you have to think about your infrastructure as an application, and that, that requires some sort of discipline and hygiene and setting up some sort of a development test stage um, workflow to move those changes into your production environment. But Puppet is a very sysadmin-y tool that's written in Ruby, so that you, have, you have to have kind of this domain and this mindset of both sides. And if you, on my blog I have a couple, because um, I'm, I'm basically a developer um, by uh, circumstance, we'll say. <laughs> if you read my blog, that might make more sense. And then there's my partners who were more from the sysadmin, although Luke's probably right like on the, on the edge between both worlds now. Um, but there's, there's sort of like this collision uh, where you could have like confusion and contention. But there's also a great synergy when you start talking about you know, things are code. And, and so in a lot of places, I don't know what you guys do or what you guys use, but a lot of sysadmin organizations, they don't use version control, right? They don't, they don't use a lot of the things that developers take for granted, but there's an opportunity um, to instead of thinking like, that's not my tribe, that's not what I do, to say there's a good reason to do that and learn the lessons. So the developers can learn lessons from the sysadmins, the sysadmins can learn lessons from developers. It's actually dependent, I mean, it's particularly when you start talking about web infrastructure, is particularly important because the, the systems that you're running, that's, that's not the mail server that can go down, right? That's the business value. That's the value chain of that organization. And if you have an, if you have an application that does something important and provides value and the developers don't understand the infrastructure and, and the implications of what they do on the infrastructure, particularly when you start talking about data and all this other stuff, then you can literally crush your servers with, with, with things that developers work great on their desk, right? And because of the, the, the logic and the usage pattern, when you put that on the production environment, it's going to bring everything down. And, and I don't know if you guys have seen this, but I have done it. Yeah, it works on my machine, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I'll show you a joke at the end. It's a, a video online that it's pretty funny. Um, if you're listening to this, then you should Google uh, Giles Boquette uh, Ruby and a light bulb and watch the video because it is great. And that's a little plug for Giles. So we have this collision. We have, and, and so I was, I was just saying how the developers have to understand the infrastructure, but, but conversely, the sysadmins also has to understand the application when you get in this situation. So the way that you set up your stuff, the way that you analyze the, you know, the spikes in load, that has implications for, for the application. And getting developers and sysadmins to solve those problems together is win-win. And, and like trying to keep everything walled and siloed is epic fail. So there's sort of this evolution. This, I think I love this picture. Um, I think like there's certain things that are happening with, with both you know, the Puppet project itself and web infrastructure and a lot of interesting things that sort of involve all, all four of these categories. And you know, we, could, we could kind of philosophize about that, but there's basically like things are changing. The way that you build infrastructure today is going to be different tomorrow. And, and what you can do today, you couldn't do five years ago. 
right now, any, anyone with a credit card can bring up 20 servers on EC2 in, in five minutes. That's how long it takes to boot. Well, I mean, that's the upper bound probably, but you, you could have 20 servers doing whatever you want. That's power. That, that's the ability to do experiments. That's the ability to deliver value that you probably didn't have five years ago, right? So that's the clouds. And that's the, that's, the, that's the change that's coming. That's the opportunity that's there. And the reason you asked earlier why you'd want Amazon to run your infrastructure, so you don't have to do it. So you don't have to plug in cables. And is that what you want to do? Your, your So you, is, is George right. So so George Castro, it, it, he sent a, a tweet to Luke a long time ago that said, um, "People have uh, finally seen. They're starting to figure out the puppet gets you to the pub by four. Note that I have been at this pub since two. <laughs> <laughs> so it, it's it's really what you're talking about is figuring out that." If you're doing things declaratively with Puppet and you're using virtualization and some of these things are happening, then you're not pulling cables. Obviously, somewhere someone probably has to plug some stuff in. But at the end of the day, it gives you the ability to think about things at a high level and manipulate this stuff in ways that you never could do before. Right? And then this is, this is another Rubyism, and this is particularly a, a Mountain West Ruby Conference idiom. And it's probably going to make no sense to you guys at all. But... It is what it is. <laughs> it's, it's Darth Vader in a sombrero. And, uh, yeah, it would take too long to explain, but if you ever go to Mountain West Ruby Conference and you're doing a talk, I want to see Darth Vader and sombreros in subliminal messages. Mark my words. And that's, that's the presentation I gave for Mountain West Ruby Conference uh, yesterday. And that brings me to the questions portion of the uh, presentation. Can you talk about specifically some of the things that you So this is a big topic, and, and this is something I'm interested in my other kind of role and thinking about this stuff is process and methodology and testing and, and skills, right? So, so unit testing is a skill. Testing all the effing time is actually a skill and, and a discipline. The, and I'll swear if you guys are, if you meet me on the street, but I'm in Salt Lake City and I'm streaming, so I'm doing the best I can here. The... Uh, the question you're asking, I, I think that's sort of, I mean, there's certain things Puppet can do. It can provide stability for those. Because um, a lot of times you, you have, in, in some organizations, you have a huge discrepancy between what's in production and what's in the test and development environments. And that can lead to a lot of, of nightmares because what works in one doesn't work in the other, and that, that can cause you problems. So you can provide that sort of stability. As far as teaching testers how to test, that's its own problem, right? And, and Puppet's not going to solve that for you. Um, I'm not necessarily suggesting that 
What, what it allows you to do... So Then, then I think the answer is yes, because you can, you know, to whatever degree. The, the thing that's hardest to, 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 to do, and Puppet's not going to help you do this, is, is simulate the usage patterns and the load on a sort of, sort of web application. But it should do a, you know, great job of providing the consistency across. Because what happens in a lot of places, uh, particularly when what we were just talking about before, where you have, like, the application is treated separately from the infrastructure. So the application might go through this testing process, but then the configuration on the production servers, those are often just done, right? And, and they're, not, they're not the same. Often they're, they're, they're different machines, right? There's a lot more RAM. There's a lot more CPU. So there's... Well, there's right, exactly. So, so being able to provide that consistency is a big win. When you start talking about virtualization, which we mentioned earlier, one of the things that uh, we do, we're doing some projects for people where we're, we're actually providing mechanisms. So, so it's one thing to have like this test environment and this dev environment, but often some of the tests that people do change the environment, right? So it's nice to get, if you're doing unit tests and you're, you're running those applications and you, know, you can clear the memory and bring it back up, but there's this test instance that just sits there forever and whatever stuff got done to it might affect how the application runs later. So you can use tools like Puppet to rebuild from clean images so that you, you're testing from a known state. So that's also a pretty big win. Does that answer your question or is there yeah, more? That, that's a human engineering problem yeah, more than a technology problem. Yeah. There's, there's built-in support for a notion of, of um, environments. I, so you can use environments, but you can also just set them up as separate puppet masters. Um, there's pros and cons to both approaches, and I know people doing it both ways. You look like you're going to ask a question. I mean, were, were the infrastructure and the code, I mean, are you really seeing a, a great synergy between the developers and the actual people who administrate the site? Are they really, a, I, I can see it maybe. Okay, so the answer is sort of, and, and it kind of depends from organization to organization, right? Okay. So there's a lot of, and this, this goes across, I mean, it's really a human engineering problem, just like, uh, like Clint was talking about. So you have places where there's 10,000 boxes, and there's 200 people that have root, and there's, you know, 20 dev teams, and it's a total whatever bad word you want to use that um, describes a mess, right? And, and so there's all these politics and there's all these pathological issues with process and methodology. And so what happens in most of those, those sort of enterprise uh, organizations that can't really get that together is they implement these draconian change management processes so things just happen really, really, really slowly. Um, the, the flip side of that is we have a client that runs and I can't say their name. I wish I, I could, and hopefully that will get fixed eventually. But they, they run, they have 10,000 machines. It's all puppetized. They basically have a system where the developers writing the applications as part of the application delivery write the puppet code 
to manage and configure that application. Right, so now you have a boundary object. You have a shared object that both the operations and systems guys look at and understand and the developers understand. And so you get, it facilitates this communication between both groups that you don't necessarily have when, when developers are just throwing things over the wall. Does that make sense? Yeah, so the developer's actually and, and if the application doesn't get in this particular organization, which I think is like the shining example of how it could and should be, if the developers don't manage that application properly, then it's a bug. They open a bug against the application until that puppet code works. So that you have a workflow that where, where everything's vetted at the dev level, then it's vetted at the test level, then maybe mm -hmm. staging. Yeah. Exactly. Well, the, yeah. It's a human engineering problem. You can't even get your testers to test. What are you talking about? <laughs> hey, don't talk bad about testers. I got I got love for testing and testers. You know, I'll come I'm over there. I'll come over there. <laughs> they get no love and everything's their fault. Sam, <coughs> I'm on the other. No, it's actually the PHP's other extreme. Right. See, I'm on the other extreme. I'm in a real small company. It's me, two developers, all our offices together. It works really well. But the thing that I'm interested in this is. We run free BSD in virtual machines. We don't have a physical box. Mm -hmm. Everything we do is already in virtual. And I have like a demo box where the sales guy goes out and does demo with data. And I need to reset the data after he's done a demo and dicked with the database and made a bunch of changes showing. It looks like this. I could set it where I could very easily just, just roll in it back instantly to fix in the box after he's shown a customer. Should so be able to automate it. And, Should be able to automate it. Pretty, pretty straightforward. You look skeptical. Yeah. So this, I have a couple other presentations I've done before, um, and the Puppet Master server. In this particular case, I'm just showing the code right. because the project itself. So there's other things I didn't tell you guys. So this was all about code. But then there's, there's puppet infrastructure. So you have a puppet client, a puppet master, there's a puppet executable, and they all kind of do stuff, and they're all kind of flexible, and you can choose different ways to use them. So with the instance of your EC2 deployment there, you rig just the puppet executable and said, run the following, mm -hmm. just run this. You didn't have a puppet master feed it to it. It's just, this is, this is the configuration. This is what I wanted. Do it right now. Yep. Cobbler was written for pup, or to integrate with Puppet out of the box. So you have a presentation scale about whether or not it was good or not. The intention was to talk about how Cobbler Yeah, when you spend a whopping three minutes on Cobbler, 
it really doesn't integrate well. But okay. What, what happened? I didn't, I didn't see this talk, but... I want to say, I want to say that I, I know Michael Devon okay. quite well. Um, he's a great guy. And his product, Cobbler, is amazing. And I use it at work. And I love it. And I've used it for personal things. I love it for things. I'm, I'm under the... Uh, like, this puppet is still kind of like this brainchild for me. Like, I'm still trying to understand it completely. Because from what I understand, you have to kind of use it before you actually get it. I think there's some truth to that in almost anything, though. Yeah, well, the thing is, is like, I understand the concept behind puppet, but like, what I can do with it is so grand, I guess is the way to put it. Right. Like, I can think of so many things that I can do with puppet that it doesn't really have to be, I don't have to have a puppet master. I don't have to have these things. I can do it. And, it, and it's kind of like Ruby's old, um, it's Play-Doh type methodology you told me about. It's like, it's just this big mess of things, and I can do whatever I want with it. I can mold it in the form that I want. So you want less choices, is what you're saying? No, I want less choices. <laughs> that's basically what it is. Like, it's how I do it. Right. But and then, so but then choices... Okay. You do have to start thinking. Can I just get a what-what for, for start thinking? Can we get people to start thinking? Because I think that will fix a lot of problems. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Look, that's dangerous. So the thing I think about is, like, okay, so... Currently, I'm, I'm oh, you, you know, the whole deployment of uh, production versus testing versus staging and, and getting that to be in place is probably going to be a great undertaking as it is. Um, one of the things that, that uh, I've seen a fair amount in a couple of the projects that I work on are they actually install applications using Puppet. Now, I'm not sure if they're using a Puppet Master or not. I think they are. But they basically just send it to Puppet. Now, how does that actually work? Like, so they just say, Go install this thing. And it's just a brand new package that they just built. And it's actually using the package management system underneath. Let's just say it's, it's um, So I, I can only speculate, but let's say you had a package for your application, sure. right? Which you, like that's sysadmin love is to have like native package managers right. versus like Rails deployments. Well, it's or using the native package manager at the bottom. So, so if that package has a name and you just have Puppet set to install the latest version, and you move that into your private repo that you control and have that pointed at, the next time Puppet runs, it's going to resynchronize. It's going to see there's a new version, and it'll install it. Oh, okay. So, it, so is, is it actually, it's Puppet runs, it, 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 it's part of the cron, you can set it for every 30 minutes? So the default, it doesn't, the default is not to run it as cron. Um, people run it as cron sometimes um, for other reasons. The default is every 30 minutes it will resynchronize, and so that's where the item potency comes in. So it's basically going to revalidate all of the settings that you set up, and if if a package is changed and there's now a new version, it will roll to that. It has a daemon, a client. So that's the oh, puppet so D. Okay, yeah, okay. And, but you could people run it in cron, or people run people just run the executable. So they they like do their own for whatever reason. Um, and it's back to the Play-Doh thing. They'll they'll set up instead of having Puppet Master, they'll just rsync the manifest, and then and then run from the Puppet executable, just like I did on the on the demo. Does that make sense? Yes, Play-Doh.
So, hold on. Let me bring. So this is just just to kind of give you a little more idea about some of it. And this isn't necessarily up to date. There's a lot more people, um, but this is the this is the presentation that we did for the uh, Ruby War. So like Google manages uh, their their infrastructure, their workstations, the Mac infrastructure with Puppet. Red Hat uses Puppet. Um, like we said, Cobbler is a great tool. James Turnbull, who's who's the community manager slash release manager for for the project, is like a huge Cobbler fan now. Keeps raving about Cobbler. So you can go from basically whether you, whether you're going to have virtualized instances or or something like Cobbler, you can basically go from bare metal to running services in like automated way. The news thing, you know, So, so Puppet's open source, free software, right? So at least once a month, someone comes on the mailing list, and they're like, does it work on Windows? We're like, no. Oh, I'd really like it if it worked on Windows. Well, do you have um, any money? No, I don't want it that bad. <laughs> you know, so... I mean, it's, it's just a matter of time and work to do it. Yeah, if you if you know Windows and you understand the models and, and the framework, you can go do that. And I think someone who understood both the, the model, you know, the, the framework model, and then what you want to accomplish on Windows, and there's some, there's, I don't manage Windows, I don't know Windows personally. I'm, I'm sure I could learn it if someone gave me a minute. I'm, I, I used to basically, I'm going to be honest, and, and this, this is a Ubuntu group, but I used to think that anyone who did anything on Windows or .NET, I just kind of wrote them off. But through other, other parts of my life, I have learned that there are some smart people that do .NET and do you know, C Sharp and all this kind of stuff. And I respect them a lot. And I've, opened, I've learned to, to love and open my heart, to tell you the truth. And, and so you know, we're going to have a little testimonial. But at the end of the day, you, have, you essentially have people doing what they have to do. right? And, and there's, there's a ton of people running Windows. And there's a ton of people running that stuff. So more power to them. That's just not what I do. And, and if someone wants to make it work on Windows, then I, 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 we have a guy right now that he, you know, he has his job. If, if we were able to give him a little bit of money, it's probably like a two-month project, and it will work on Windows. It's, 
there's a lot of money to be made maybe because of the like the kind of the philosophy like no one on Windows like everyone on Windows pays for stuff right but there's also there's also more there's also more cooper or competition there's a lot of GUI tools to manage Windows and so you kind of need someone who's at the at the corner like the that is on that border that has to manage these heterogeneous networks where they have both systems. They see the value of a framework like Puppet, and they have to manage all these Windows systems perhaps reluctantly, and they're trying to figure out a, a good way to do that. Well, that's a that's SlideShare. I can I can post PDFs. I actually have a PDF. Um, I'll I'll give it. I'll just send you the file right as soon as I finish, and you can put it up. The, the slides are uh, yeah, they're they're PDF'd. Mount West Ruby Conference represent. It was at the library about. Uh, 230, 250 Rubius. No, we had that uh, the big theater auditorium thing. It, it seats, it seats, you know, maybe 200 something, maybe 300, maybe. And there's people from all over the Mountain West. So people as far as uh, I know, I know one guy's from Pennsylvania. And then there's speakers from all over. So it was, uh, it's one, it's probably one of the not to toot the uh, Mountain West horn, but it's an excellent Ruby conference. What what channel are you guys on? Utah Ubuntu dash Utah. Okay. Gotcha. So that's Puppet. I have, you can reach me on Twitter, Little Idea. Uh, GitHub, Little Idea has all this code. I, I do, Little Idea on Identica, but I don't use it too much. Um, but then it's annoying because everyone sees the same thing if they're following you on both, and I don't know. Right. And I imagine the community's just getting bigger and bigger. So the the if you go to Pound Puppet right now, there's probably 200 people, um, and and a lot of those guys are Europeans and Australians. So you you can have conversations at two in the morning when you're, uh, you know. There, there's usually 30 to 50 mail. The average is about 30. So that if you count the weekends, sometimes there'll be you know 40, 50 emails on the user list a day. And the dev list is getting more and more active as well. There's, there's probably, I, th I think last week there was on average two, three patches a day um, from the community. And then, you know, just there's a lot of interest. There's a lot of um, ideas.
So the the main developer that wrote like all this framework is his brainchild and his labor of love is Luke Luke Kinese. Um, you can go to if you go to reductivelabs.com, that's our website. Luke's blog is madstop.com, and he talks about the history of Puppet and and CF Engine. I don't know if anyone's familiar with CF Engine, but he, he used to be he used to be uh, you know really into CF Engine and automation, and then he got to the point where he was kind of frustrated with with what CF Engine could do, and that was sort of the the birthplace of Puppet, and and now. I mean, the, this, the, the, whole, the whole concept of infrastructure as code is becoming more, more prevalent. There's more ideas. There's, I, I think it, eventually you're going to, right now this is puppet language. There's, there's a project that we're doing that someone wants that will expose a pure Ruby internal DSL to write uh, resources, like the resource I showed you and add them to the catalog. And I think it's not too far away and I don't know if it'll be this year, but it'll, it'll be pretty soon, that you, you should be able to add resources to the Puppet catalog with arbitrary logic. Because if you look at, if you remember the code we just looked at, it's, it's, it's a lot of it's data. So there's some logic, obviously, some conditionals and, and that kind of stuff, but it's mostly data. And so if you could just represent that as your favorite data format, JSON or whatever, then add through whatever logic, if you like to program in Python or you like to program in whatever, then you could just pass this data into that framework and then have other, other logic that's built up. And, and, and so you could have things coming from other places and going other places, and it just becomes like this central nexus to, to manipulate your infrastructure. Because one of the things we didn't, it's hard to see here, this is configuring one instance, right? right. So, but what you really want to be able to do is orchestrate clusters. Right. You want to be able Right, and so then you start to have not just the intra-host configurations, but inter-host configurations that you need to manage. So you need to be able to say, these 100 servers connect to this database. This load balancer is load balancing you know, these servers. And, and so you, you have to be able to coordinate that with Puppet. And you can, you can do most of that right now. There's a few places where uh, it could be better, but it, it's... Uh, it's definitely progressing, and I think you're going to see a lot of, of movement in that direction. Where is Labs Wherever I'm standing. No, just kidding. Um, technically, it's 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 Luke's house, on the you know the all the stationery or whatever. Yeah, yeah, which is in Nashville, Tennessee, and I don't know what the future holds for sure, but there's a good chance that we'll. Try to get the headquarters in Portland. That's where that's where I met Luke uh, a long time ago. Say again. There's three of us. Reductive Labs is uh, three musketeers right now, and that's uh, Luke Teo and myself. And then there's also some uh, people from the community that we are probably going to bring onto the team as uh, circumstances permit and you know, you'll see I think you'll see the team double in size in, in probably three four months and then you know by the end of the year who knows I so I worked full-time on this project for a year and I paid my mortgage 
and you know, God willing, I can pay my mortgage this year, and we'll see where it goes. I'm just curious because I uh, help with the startup bank. I'm going to I work for two startups. Um, one of them still kicking. Uh, one of them went from 80 people to about 15 people in nine months, and the, you know, two three years before that, they'd burned through 26 million dollars and had essentially nothing to show for it. Then. And, and uh, some of the other, I mean, we're getting into a totally different uh, area now, but th there's other circumstances that make some, some of this particularly difficult. But honestly, for us right now, because of what Puppet provides and the value that it provides and, and the other circumstances of economics, it's, it's almost counter-cyclical. So we're, we're getting more interest than, than we were. I mean, we, and part of it's the, the normal growth curve, but, but I think that in some cases it's easier so, so if you look at the commercial space, the, the obvious, there, there's other projects that can do some of this sort of policy-based automation. The, uh, Blade Logic and Offsware um, kind of jump to the front of that pack, but there's other, there's other tools as well. And th those, those guys, to, to get those tools installed is quite expensive. And if you've had those tools installed, then you, you know, you're paying these yearly support or licenses on, on that software, and you're like, hmm, how can I save myself? Some money. Oh wait, there's something that I can use that doesn't cost a quarter of a million or you know half a million. Total cost of ownership. Well, I think the price. The price of open source is expertise, right? So well, you, you, pay for, you pay for one person as opposed to paying for 10 licenses. Sure. Right, but you have to have an expert person. Or you can you can pay me and I will train you. <laughs> and it will be awesome. See, and that, that, that's the cost of the employee. Well, thanks for having me. I, uh, I'm a little tired, so hopefully that was uh, intelligible. Thank you for listening to Hack Republic Radio. HPR is sponsored by caro.net, so head on over to caro.net for all your hosting needs.